Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commitment Matters. We're so glad you're here. If you find the world of Washington, D.C. confusing, confounding, frustrating, or just plain intimidating, we have a great episode for you. I know it can be easy to tune out or get discouraged, especially when you have to be so heads down in daily operations. But don't let frustration set in too deep because things are happening and they are things that will impact you and your business. So Steve Gottheim from ALTA joins us today. And boy, do we cover the scene in D.C. He talks about how digital closings are the single biggest industry push in Washington right now. He also has some interesting news about lenders who are having trouble finding settlement agents who can perform digital closings and how the Alta Registry can help you signal your abilities to those lenders. You'll be interested to hear about an Alta member's new closing calendar of just 15 minutes at the table closings. Does that sound good to you? You might be curious to hear what TRID and COVID-19 have in common. I'll pause for your punchline here. And we go around the horn of things that matter to us, including the Biden administration, Congress, and the Supreme Court. And we touch on the Secure Notarization Act, 1031 Exchange Tax Policy, the Infrastructure Bill, the Building and Economy for Families Act, and why the focus on fairness is important for your revenue. And since this is all going on, we encourage you to raise a voice and make your opinions known. And we tell you some ways that Alta can help you with that. Remember, if you're not seated at the table, the odds significantly increase of you being on the menu. So we wanted to talk you through any shyness or hesitation you might have about making your voice heard. Do I need to remind you again that you really matter? Of course, you know that Steve is general counsel for the American Land Title Association and is an eminent thinker and doer in advocating on behalf of what you do in Washington, D.C. Having worked with Steve for many years now, I can tell you that one of his most valuable abilities is helping title and settlement agents weave our concerns into a mainstream and compelling narrative. So if you have some thoughts that you aren't sure whether they're ready to share with a representative, reach out to Steve and let him help you become more confident in advocating for the future of our business and your livelihood. Don't just sit on the sidelines and hope the changes are going to turn out positively. Join us in getting into the game and helping craft a workable future for the land title industry. A timing note, this was recorded at the end of June, and we've had some movement on some bills since then, so don't let that be disorienting. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Steve Gottheim. So let's start with what's going on in the industry. Aside from everybody being sort of crazy busy, what are you seeing out there? And what is your confidence level on how long this good, productive, busy seasoning will last? Just look out over the landscape, if you would, and tell us what's on your radar. Yeah, it's hard to think about the fact that there are winners and losers in a pandemic. We all think about the negative side of the last year and a half and the the hundreds of thousands of Americans that passed away and the millions of Americans that lost their job. But sometimes you get lost in in that the downside of things, we sometimes forget about the ups. And, you know, this industry is one that was a really big winner in the pandemic in terms of how strong a year that we all had last year, that you all had last year, and that really we expect it. We are still seeing, you know, in the first six months of this year, and we expect to see through the rest of this year and going forward. I mean, everybody is super swamped. That is the number one thing we keep hearing. We are hearing a lot uh, from agents across the country about just how hard it is to hire people because they don't have really the time to train people, even if they can find the quali- even if they can find a qualified person, somebody who knows title. Um, they don't have the ability to get them up and running, and so we continue to hear just folks, you know, struggling with trying to meet the demand that's out there and struggling to give their teams the leeway to meet that demand and also not burn out really quickly. And I think that that is kind of the biggest thing that we hear the most out of the industry right now. And 
the unfortunate thing is there's nothing in the forward mirror that you can point to well if we can just get through this busy season then it calms down and we can do all these priorities that we've had to that we've had to do i mean last year proved that there was no end to busy season and i think we're, while we're getting into a more normal pattern with our housing market it's tough to predict when things are going to calm down enough where people feel like they can get into this types of forward looking for improving their business that they used to do in the past and so we, we see this very acutely right now right. the buzzword for us in dc is all around digital closings because of how much the industry had to pivot to looking at digital throughout this pandemic the flip side to that is how many agents would have wanted to be able to go digital in the pandemic but just couldn't do it both from a time management standpoint and then from just access to technology and access to getting onboarded they couldn't carve out the time based on the volume to make that transition and so they've had to get creative in other closing options so you know we certainly see those as kind of the big themes that have come out of 2020 and the beginning part of 2021 which is high volume high demand high anxiety levels with the volume of work that are out there and really having that put a, a little bit of a damper on the ability to kind of look at some of the next trends that might be coming out, especially when it comes to technology and, and to di- into the world of digital closing. And we've also heard from the other side of the coin from some people who were able to get that technology adopted or already had it in place. They were well ahead of the curve. I think some of them were also alternatively surprised at sort of the lack of the demand push coming from either the lender side or the realtor side. You know, these agents who were enabled for that were trying to tout from the rooftops, we have this ability and it's perfect time to embrace it. It's a pandemic. We want to keep you safe. We want to keep things rolling. While it wasn't flatly panned, there were a few who appreciated, but certainly not at the volume that I think people expected. I don't know if if you've seen that as well and what you attribute it to if you have. We hear this all the time. In fact, we we were on a call with the folks at Freddie Mac earlier this week, and the main theme is Freddie Mac hears from their lender customers. Well, we have so much trouble finding title providers that are ready to do a digital closing. And we uh, at ALTA just did a survey of title agents about their closing options and, and experience in 2020. And lo and behold, the biggest hurdle to further and what more widespread adoption is the lack of lenders that are out there able to do this. Everybody is seeing that from that lens. I think the thing that's become very acute to me in this last 18 months is where there's a desire a lot of times in our membership and in the in- title industry to do a digital closing, to adopt re- remote notarization, to find that technology. While there's an understanding of kind of the challenges from the title operation to jump in that space, from our membership, there's a very strong lack of understanding of the challenges to do that in the lending space. At the beginning of the pandemic in March or April of last year, I wrote a article for our website and our magazine about why legally you can't just slap a digital signature on a PDF of a promissory note and think that makes for a good e-note. It was one of our most read articles of the year, but also one of the ones where I got the most amount of email back about, well, it should be allowed and you should be fighting to make sure that that's allowed. And we're talking about 20 years of law that's been out there on how this is done. But I think until you dive into it, until you try to think about how you do it, nobody is really thinking about those factors. But that's really what it comes down to for a lot of our lender partners is that they really aren't set up and able to do an e-note. And if you can't do an e-note, they're not going to do a fully digital closing or they're not going to do a digital closing at all. Title companies are sitting there trying to figure out how how do you get to the next step and the reality is in many ways as prepared as you are going to be as a title company you need to be prepared until you know that you've got lender partners that have made that commitment to setting up their e-vault and being ready for an e-note it's going to be hard to get that volume going from five percent up to fifty percent in the digital channel and 
that gap that was really kind of going to be the, the next wave of what people have to do trying to figure out how you close. And the reality is we can get a lot of title agents ready for digital. Our data shows that more than half of the title agents in the country have experimented with at least one digital closing last year. That is way up from the year before and only going to continue to grow. But still, 85% of closings are done on paper. For that number, that 85% to change, we really need to see a lot of lenders get ready to be able to use an e-note because until they're ready to do e-notes, which is a very time-consuming and costly process from the lender standpoint, it's never going to make a lot of economic sense to do these hybrids in many ways. Which is a little bit frustrating because it seems like there are so many interests that sort of coalesce in a hybrid model. The Bureau famously wanted to whack the stack earlier on. The lenders would like their borrowers to sort of have a pre-closing experience with some of the minor docs and sort of a dress rehearsal explanation of the major documents. And so I think that that's been a large frustration for a lot of agents, especially who have taken the time to become versed and offer this technology. And that because the lenders say, well, if we can't do the whole kit and caboodle with a verifiable remote online notary that isn't going to expire when an executive order runs its term, or because the lender doesn't have an e-note, then we can't do any of it. I know that that's frustrating, and then that causes the title agent to not widely promote that they can do some sort of digital closing and try to close this gap at the time and bulk of things handled at the closing. So it seems like that 80% of the other documents might be a good way to sort of get this brought into the mainstream, even if e-notes are aren't ready for prime time and we don't have the case law and we don't have all these things. It just seems like that would be a great place for people to agree and move forward on. And yet we just don't see a lot happening there like it could too. And I don't know if you see sort of a first step out of this log jam or if you feel like we just sort of need to wait for it to all evolve all at once, at least lender by lender. What what do you think about that? There's a lot of excuses that get put up from kind of just dipping your toe into that first step of doing a digital closing. And, and you kind of talked about some of those ways in which you can kind of start the hybrid process which is a lot of the reason why our biggest priority here in DC this last year in the year in 2020 and really again in here in 2021 is passing the Secure Notarization Act. This is a law that would allow nationwide use of the remote online notarization technology. It kind of tries to get us over that hump of however many states still have executive orders that are either temporary or expiring or maybe never were constitutional to begin with. It gets us across the states that have not gone the permanent legislative route and just puts one national standard, at least national minimum standard, out there. And it, again, takes away one excuse that's out there, which is I can't do this in every market, so I'm not going to do it in any market. The other part of this, and I think we've continued to hear this a little bit during the pandemic, is with folks, especially at the beginning in March, April, and May of last year, being very afraid afraid of personal interaction and our lack of knowledge about how transmissible is this virus? How well does a plexiglass divider really protect us? How long does it live on a piece of paper? All of those unknowns led us to really have to think a lot more creatively about how do we do a closing and think more efficiently about it. And so I know in talking to a lot of agents, that was the real impetus to getting them to really start to think about technology like DocuSign to, again, whack the stack. We have one agent on our board of governors that tells the story of in February of 2020, their entire staff had no interest in using DocuSign for all of the pre-closing docs, for all the disclosures, for any of that type of stuff. No interest. They didn't want to learn it. They didn't want to use it. They didn't even want to know that DocuSign was a word. Enter June of 2020, they're using it on every transaction so that their closing does only take about 15 minutes and just is about signing the, the core documents. 
And now, if you tried to pull the plug on them from using it, their her staff would have a revolt because they've gotten so used to it and seen the value, but it was only because they got forced into seeing that value. And I think a lot of times that half of what you have to do to get people to, to change the behavior they know is force them into doing something different, get them to feel what the difference can be and how it can be beneficial to them. And then eventually they'll realize that there's a lot of upside for them on those subjects. But I think that's the thing that stands out to me is there are a lot of ways that you can jump into this pool one step at a time, but you've got to knock down these kind of excuses and barriers to get people to even consider it. And that's really why, again, we're focused so heavily on the Secure Notarization Act. We're focused very heavily on working with our partners at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to allow and have very clear guidelines about the type of remote notarizations they will allow so that all of those excuses about, well, I don't know what the rules are going to be tomorrow. I don't know what law, I don't know that I can do this in Alabama or in, in California or whatnot. All of those excuses run away. And then it's really about what is the investment I need to make as a company and what is the best thing for my customer and for my operation. And there's a lot of operational efficiency that will happen with digital closings. It'll become really apparent when you are able to get a lot of volume. And so we need to find ways to help make it easier to put volume through that channel so that the investment that title companies are making does pay off in that dividend. I, for one, and I'm sure there are others who are thrilled to hear that the GSEs report that their lenders are desperate for title agents who are digital close enabled. And if I'm a title agent today, I'm going to start screaming from the rooftop that I can do this, I can offer it, and start educating some lenders about that offering maybe is a thing to do. We've heard that excuse for a long time, right? Lenders, I don't know which title agents can do a digital closing. So again, early in the pandemic, we made the decision through our ALTA title agent registry product that we offer to offer a RON ready icon, a place for title agents to self-report again, that they're ready to do a RON, to give lenders a choice and an option to find those agents so that again, we can remove that as an excuse. Hopefully, I think a lot of agents that have gone down the path of getting ready for Ron that have really taken the time to invest in that technology, the systems, the practices and training their staff are starting to see a lot of the dividends and benefits to it. And, you know, from what we continue to hear, those that have been doing a good job marketing those capabilities are really connecting with lenders and finding new volume that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise because they're holding themselves out as an expert on the topic and an expert in helping a lender get to the process that they need to use. And there's a lot of parallels that I see here with the way the industry prepares prepared for trade. I don't think anybody could argue that the title industry wasn't the most prepared for trade of all of our partners in the real estate transaction. And I have to imagine that the number of hours of trade training classes taught by title professionals dwarfs the amount of hours taught by lenders probably by a four to one margin at a conservative estimate. I feel like we're in that same boat now that title agents have heard the hue and cry and they have really started to get into the focus of learning how to do a digital closing, how to really make the remote notarization process work, how to make the technology work and how to really think about all of these options and are kind of leading the charge of kind of helping to make their partners see the light on it and kind of find those happy paths. We had a digital boot camp that we hosted in August of last year. And again, the appetite was overwhelming from title agents that wanted to learn more from their peers about how to do this in a better way because they had started to go down this path. We're seeing some struggle, but the appetite from the lender community, you know, the lenders that were doing this, they wanted to hear more from title agents and partner with title agents. But the ones that hadn't made that investment choice into it, they just aren't ready to dip their toe in the water. And I think that's really the big challenge. And so we need to continue to find ways to support our lenders to make the same type of investment that title agents are making to make this work. I'm happy to hear you compare that to the tread model because I rewound in my mind immediately back to in the lead up to the tread implementation. And remember, the lenders were juggling all those other rule changes, ability to repay and all of those. And so they weren't able to yet put their eye on the tread ball, sort of back in their compliance department and their tech 
departments with several other things that they were having to tune up to. And so that created such an opportunity for Title and Settlement to go lead in that space and help them know what was coming and why things were changing and and what to do. And as uncomfortable as that probably felt in the beginning for especially settlement agents, to take that leadership role on largely a lending role. The need was there, and I think those that took that more educational posture and did the outreach certainly benefited from their having done that. And so as uncomfortable as that might have felt in the beginning, certainly some of these digital questions probably feel uncomfortable too. But if you, A, have the time, which is a bit hard to find right now, but can B, carve out that confidence and and not be afraid to ask questions, then sort of repeating that model will continue to send benefits to those agents who are able to go out on that limb. Whether or not they can even contemplate taking on more business right now at this point, eventually we all go looking for new revenue. And so that should stand to be a real differentiator, it sounds like, in your opinion. I think there's a lot of the parallel to that TRID era. One of the things that I distinctly remember from the two years helping the industry prepare for TRID is the early part of training where people were kind of just going off of some samples of forms and some some PowerPoints to the latter part when people started to have the technology and start to see some of the processes in place and start to really dive into it and being able to to take that diving into it and really learn from it and then train your staff. And I certainly noticed it from the calls we were getting at ALTA, from the types of calls we were getting in the early part of 2015 in like you know December 2014, January 2015, from the agents that were proactive getting ahead of the curve on this. And then the calls we were getting in October and November of 2015, when the agents that had kind of dug their head in the sand didn't really pay attention to this and were just really digging into their technology for the first time and didn't really understand any of these rules and hadn't done all that legwork and background that agents did as they were attending, you know, whether it was a Ramfest user group or one of our ALTA TRID forums or one of their state land title association conventions. I feel like that we're at the same point now. There are a lot of agents that have taken the time, yes, Maybe there isn't a lot of volume in the digital clothing space right now, but they've taken the time, they've invested, they've started to train staff, their staff has started to work more closely with lenders, trying to find those happy paths that are out there, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. And what that will hopefully prove in the end is that when there is some more volume, those agents will be much more prepared, ready to go, serve that customer much better than the agent that is trying to jump into a digital closing experience tomorrow because they just got a lender request today saying, I've got this customer who needs to close on a RON platform because they're going to be overseas on a military commitment for the next two years. You know, the more agents that we have out there that recognize that we are in that third to fourth inning of the digital closing game and starts to get into that game and get ready to to play, it'll only make it uh, hopefully a lot easier to win it in the ninth inning. I think that helps people really start to right size because, again, they've been just trying to manage this avalanche as it stands today. They have not had a whole lot of luxury time to look forward and see what their postures coming out of all this need to be. But it's at least time to start asking those questions and making a bit of a game plan. And I have to agree with you. I think that making an investment in being able to provide those services, if you haven't yet, should be one of the key initiatives for certainly the next year for any agency, if not sooner. So let's transition a little bit and talk about everything that's been going on in Washington, D.C., because obviously we have not been able to get together in person for an AltaFed conference for two years. You guys did a great job of doing it virtually. And I know we have a lot of listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to attend a Fed conference. And so if they have not, they may not be as well versed in all of the things that Alta is engaged in and monitoring and influencing. So I kind of want 
to go sort of around the district if we can and talk about some of the changes that have gone on in the last few months. So let's start with the Biden administration. Tell us what you're expecting, what you're monitoring, what you're working on there. The biggest change in D.C. has been this kind of change in government and the Biden administration taking over for presidency. And, you know, for those of you who are political junkies and have kind of paid attention to the last six months and kind of the tenor and tone of the administration, I think you see two big goals playing in a little bit in tension with each other and trying to figure out how the administration balances these two goals really helps kind of show kind of what might happen in D.C. and how and why it happens that way. It's this desire for this more ideal, normal world of D.C. where there's bipartisanship, where people actually talk about ideas and that debate it and both sides come together and there's maybe a little bit of consensus and both sides lose a little bit, but both sides get a little more than they're losing. And then there's this progressive push that's happening that is trying to take advantage of this entire government that is democratically controlled, even though the Senate is marginally democratic controlled and the House is also only marginally democratic controlled and a push to say, we may never have this opportunity again for a generation. Let's make the most of it and try to get as much of our wish list as we could ever get and be damned any of the consequences of it. And so those two tensions are playing out every single day in the Biden administration. And you see it in, in every decision that gets made and put out publicly. At the beginning of it with cabinet nominations, trying to look through who would get nominated where. And we see that in, in some of the cabinet nominations that have been important to the title industry. So you get a more liberal member of Congress in Marsha Fudge who gets named and nominated and approved as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, someone who will focus very heavily on expanding HUD's affordable housing and anti-discrimination focuses, which helps, again, address a lot of those progressive concerns. But then you see, again, more of that bipartisan centrist concern that come out with naming Janet Yellen as the Secretary of the Treasury, someone who has a much more monetary policy background, a more traditionalist and thinker, someone that can push back at some of the more liberal thoughts of how to run the United States monetary policy, and especially in the national deficit and debt and all of those types of things. And so we see these tensions playing out. And again, we're, we're seeing them a lot right now in this current environment around infrastructure and the president's proposal for a $2 trillion infrastructure bill and then a $2 trillion social capital bill. And then what those will eventually come out to and play out to is it's really going to be the key. And so those two things are intention in everything that we see here in DC, this, at least over the next two years, as we also then start to focus on where the political winds might, might go. And so it's tough to read the tea leaves. We are continuing to hear there's this positive news with this bipartisan deal that got reached last Thursday for an infrastructure bill, almost immediately got blown up by President Biden saying some comments that made it sound like he would only support it if Congress also passed his larger human capital bill. That had to get walked back. And so it is a tenuous condition right now on whether or not that main goal of bipartisanship has any chance of really succeeding, or if the pressure is going to get so high on the administration and on Democrats to just abandon any attempt at bipartisanship and just, again, satisfy that more base instinct to pass the progressive Democratic wish list. Was or wasn't the point of separating the infrastructure out from the social capital, the human capital aspects, was the intention that to say, okay, we can all basically agree that we want to do traditional infrastructure. We may or may not want to do this other, and that's worth a debate. But if you put it all into the infrastructure, then we're going to say no. And even a lot of our members have said, Oh, I'm for infrastructure. I mean, we need the roads. We need the bridges. There's title work to be done in there, by the way. It's jobs. We've been hearing about this for a long time. Yes, let's do that. But then for a lot of people, when the social stuff got put in on top of that, then they said, well, no, now we're not for this. It's too much. It's too broad of definitions. 
So was the point of that to segregate those two out so that you could get consensus on the sort of comparative no-brainer and kind of wrangle out on the other points? And then did it just get re-kluzy again when the president made the comments that he made that he walked back? Or what's your view of that from where you sit, which is much closer to it than any of the rest of us? It is a little bit of that manner. I mean, part of the reason that the administration put out two different packages, this American Jobs Package and this American Families Package, is for the differences in messaging, right? That the Jobs Package which was mostly we all think of as traditional infrastructure, broadband, water, roads, bridges, airports, and things like that, is all the types of things that are meant to be traditionally bipartisan. I mean, there, there are two topics in D.C. that prior to really the last five, six years were just always nonpartisan issues. Everybody agreed on it. And those were infrastructure and the military, which is why, you know, traditionally the only bill that always passes Congress is the National Defense Authorization Act. And the bill that almost always needs to be reauthorized every few years that never really has any trouble is the Surface Transportation Authorization Act, which is, again, what is really the core of the infrastructure bill. Part of what we're seeing is where I think there was a hope of bipartisanship on the infrastructure. You know, the administration knew that they were not going to get much bipartisan support for most of the human capital side of this. And so separating them out was, I think, the test balloon to really see, is there going to be an appetite for our traditional bipartisan topic where we think we can all come out ahead? And you've seen fits and starts from both group of Republican senators negotiating originally directly with the White House to then this kind of senators only group that then had to bring the White House into the conversation. The game was was always to really focus on trying to get bipartisanship there and then seeing what was left and could you pass what was left based on how tenuous the Democratic caucus is. I mean, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding for folks that think it's a Democratic Senate. Well, there's 50 Democrats in that and it's 50-50, so you can't lose any votes. And the Democratic caucus is pretty widespread caucus from more conservative centrist members like Joe Manchin, like John Tester in Montana, from a lot more progressives. And so again, inside that caucus, there's a just a huge battle of how progressive to go on things. So it's not this Democratic monolith that all supports all of these ideas at the same time. And trying to figure out how do you get consensus within just the one party component and then also trying to figure figure out how to get bipartisan consensus when you get into the other party, which is also not a monolith, makes this bipartisan battle a lot more difficult. We will see. I mean, the expectation we have, if this truce continues to hold on this bipartisan deal, then the expectation is that there's going to be a vote scheduled in the Senate for the bipartisan deal. And then the next day, there will be a vote in the Senate for a budget resolution to allow the process to start for the more partisan families plan and at least get that process rolling. And so the hope that I think the administration has is, can they at least satisfy both parts of their base needs? Can they satisfy the, the bipartisan bona fides that President Biden had in his entire career in the Senate and is something he held out as core of his campaign while also at least giving him enough cover with that liberal progressive side so that there's not too much of an uproar against the administration, too much pressure on them for other areas. Well, and I'm sure for the work that Alta does, the work that you do every day, it would be a relief to see the legislative branch actually start legislating again. It just seems like so much has been put off on just a, a no, 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 regardless of which side is saying no to which other side, that then we tend to get a lot more things done via executive order, and then that puts volatility into the system and court challenges and all the way around. So I would imagine you would like to see some sort of return to normal functioning co-equal branches of government so that lasting things can get accomplished. I don't know if you have some things that if we continue to see some of these bipartisan things come to fruition. Do we have a list of agenda items that we want to put right into the hopper? 
what what's on the slate in that regard? Every trade association in Washington, if they're a good trade association, has to figure out the right ways to work with both sides. I mean, no trade association can be too far in the camp of being a Democratic or Republican trade association because the winds in D.C. change too much for that to be a strategy that's really effective. In what we all think of as normal functioning times of Congress, you still only really ever got one big, maybe bipartisan-y type bill that would happen in a Congress in every two years. Most of the legislation has always happened in much more of a smaller fashion, whether it's smaller bills that are non-controversial and can get passed on unanimous voice votes in the House and Senate, or maybe not quite fully bipartisan bills, but sufficiently bipartisan enough that they can be added to one of the must-pass pieces of legislation, whether it's a appropriations bill or, again, the National Defense Bill is always a a big one. Traditionally, Congress always at least took up a lot of these spending bills to authorize how the government spends money. And so there was always these avenues to get your priorities passed. Our hope is that there is at least some semblance of returning to normal, whether at very least looking at these appropriations bills and actually having them move like they used to have or the national defense, because those are really going to be our opportunities to look at passing our priorities like the Secure Notarization Act. I mean, that's the biggest challenge that we look at right now is trying to figure out, okay, we have a great bill in the Secure Notarization Act. Everybody that we talk to on the Hill can tell you and understand exactly why it's an important piece of legislation, why the technology is important and why having more stability and, and usefulness for remote notarizations is a good thing. We just did our virtual advocacy summit back in May, and every meeting that I was in, and I did about 30 meetings or so over the course of three days with members of Congress and their staff, you had at least somebody on that call, especially if there was a member of Congress, they would talk about, oh yeah, I refinanced my home this year, and oh yeah, that would have been nice to be able to do something like that. Or the rare case that you actually found somebody that did do a remote notarization, and understanding the need for it has never been the problem for us when it comes to remote notarization and the Secure Notarization Act, but the challenge has always been figuring out, okay, what's the thing that we could attach it to that can actually pass Congress? And when we first drafted the bill, our hope was to get it part of the CARES Act, the first of the big stimulus packages that passed last March. That didn't happen mostly because there was at least one Democratic senator that was not sure about the bill because their state didn't have Ron yet and they were worried about what it would mean for notaries in their state. That also has prevented us from doing something like on a unanimous consent process, which is, you know, again, the other way that these tend to pass. So, you know, our hope is, again, as we continue to talk more and more about the Secure Notarization Act, movement of normal bills in Congress, the type of everyday in and everyday out type of legislation that happens every year, whether it's an appropriations bill, the national defense bill, or some other type of more banking-y focused bill or something like that, that might have a chance that we can find those opportunities to get secure passed. Because until Congress gets back to the normal working of considering normal bills and passing them, no legislation of any real consequence is going to pass other than these things that can be done in a really big bargain with an administration like the infrastructure package. And so, you know, that becomes our big focus. Now, the big thing that we're always focused a lot about with this infrastructure package and this big debate on families plan as well is the president is proposing about four trillion dollars of new spending which even for a lot of democrats is a lot of money to go out the door without raising some new revenue to cover those expenses and so one of the big uh, pay-fors that had been proposed by the administration was the elimination or at least the capping of 1031 like-kind exchanges which is a small part of the business that the industry does, but it has a a sizable amount of revenue and it really does help expur a lot of commercial real estate development. About 40% of multifamily homes of of new apartment buildings use like-kind exchanges when they sell. And so there's just a sizable amount of business that goes that way that we're worried becomes less economically viable if it goes away. That being said, you know, trying to figure out how to counter some of that with all the new title work that might get done with new roads and and new uh, bridges and having to put in new infrastructure all across the country. You know, there's benefits, there are burdens to 
all of these bills. And so we have to figure out how do we deal with all of those. But that's kind of the conversation for us. As we look past you know, the immediacy of this infrastructure package, looking for those opportunities beyond secure notarization, we're really looking for more opportunities to talk with members of Congress and really think through new solutions around whether it's real estate wire fraud and some of those areas, some privacy concerns and laws around uh, uh, privacy protections for consumers. Those are some of the big topics that are also getting a lot of conversation for us here in D.C. that we think as we get to a more functioning Congress are going to be topics that we need to talk more about with our legislators because of just the outside influence that they have on our members' day-to-day business. That's one of the important roles that you guys fulfill because when we're talking to our representatives, say, for example, on the, the 1031 exchange question, we tend to put it in terms of our business. So we talk about the frequency of those commercial deals, how they help help us in fourth quarter, how they're so important for the people doing them. That frames that topic up in one manner, and none of that is incorrect. But when you also then add in sort of that couple of phases out perspective of, by the way, we're talking about multifamily structures here. We're talking about commercial properties that this 1031, while it's just the individual investor who may be paying more on their gain, that is going to influence their actions. And that is going to have an outcome that moves far past the individual who is or is not paying more for their gain. And so explaining that ripple effect, instead of it just being, well, let's stick it to the rich, but explaining how all of this ripples out and impacts the very people who are especially in a precarious position after the pandemic and all that is such an important part of that argument that you guys are able to bring color and passion. Sometimes we tend to get kind of breathy when we're just looking at our revenue, our business coming in the door, our often routine customers that some of these investors are. And this is where it comes back to the tension that the Biden administration feels. When you're talking to the types of Democrats that fit in that first camp of where, you know, they just want to get good law passed, they're looking for bipartisanship, they're looking for things that are more what we think of as traditionally liberal ideas of how to run an economy and social ideas. A lot of those business focused arguments, the conversation around the fact that, you know, 1031s are a really smart tax incentive that that really works for the economy. Again, some of the studies that we've done and been partnered with here in DC, when an investor uses a 1031 to purchase a property, they tend to put about 18% more capital into upgrading and rehabbing the property than they would otherwise put in. And so you really get almost all that bang back for your buck in better living conditions, better building conditions for people that are going to live in these buildings. Again, most of them are multifamily housing. That works really well for that side of it. When we talk about that tension with the progressive side of the Democratic caucus, it's entirely a fairness concept, right? 1031s are for people who have capital. Most normal Americans, the only capital they have in their entire life savings is a house that they're at risk of foreclosure on. And so therefore, any tenth, something like 1031 is only a benefit to the rich and the fairness is get rid of it. The benefit is tax the rich more because that's what's fair. And so up against that argument, there's no economic argument you can make that will ever change that mindset. So it comes back down to that tension of what is going to what is going to win out as this administration tries to feel its way through serving the needs of very divergent Democratic caucus on those two planes. Okay, staying with the administration, we kind of went over into the legislative pool a little bit, but new CFPB director, new focus and direction for the CFPB, what are you anticipating there? So the big question on everyone's mind is when will there be a new CFPB director? I mean, uh, President Biden nominated a gentleman named Rohit Chopra, rhymes with Oprah, to be the head of the CFPB. He's currently a commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission. 
his nomination went before the Senate Banking Committee back in late February and got voted out with a tie vote, which means in D.C. speak, that means the, the vote was not favorably reported, even though it's still moving to the Senate floor because of the 50-50 tie. Mr. Chopra comes from the world of having been part of the founding of the CFPB. He is much more in that progressive camp. His nomination was designed to help satisfy a little bit more of the progressive mindset in the Democratic caucus, making sure that nomination was set up so that President Biden wouldn't take a lot of flack from the Elizabeth Warren types about who got nominated to what she thinks of as her agency. When his nomination will get finalized and approved by the Senate, it's a big question. The first roadblock that had been put up is at the same time that President Biden nominated Mr. Chopra to be the head of the CFPB, he also lost one of his FTC commissioners to retirement. And so there was a fear that allowing Commissioner Chopra to move to the CFPB would actually put Republicans in charge of the FTC, and the administration was unwilling to do that. So they kind of held back his nomination while they passed and approved their newest FTC nominee, now chair of the FTC, Lena Khan. The expectation has been now that Ms. Khan has been placed at the FTC, that should open the door to Chopra to get in there. We're looking sometime in July is the expectation that he'll be approved, but there's currently a new hurdle that's come up in the last few weeks, which is a couple of news stories around what are seen as partisan employment practices at the CFPB. A number of employees that were asked or kind of pressured into resigning because of the belief that they were more aligned or placed into their jobs by the Trump administration and maybe don't align in their values with the Biden administration as it's taking more political control over the, over the CFPB. This is a lot of the concern that drove Congress in the first place to set up the CFPB the way it did with political insulation. As the Supreme Court has now said, that wasn't a constitutional way of doing things, but the idea behind it was to avoid a lot of these huge swings in policy and huge swings in staff every four years or every eight years, making it full changeover because of political insulation. So as the administration and as Chopra kind of figures out how to respond to these allegations about these partisan firings at the CFPB or partisan pressures on people to resign, that's really creating a little bit of a roadblock for him, especially because the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee, a gentleman named Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, has been very active on the story, has sent a lot of questions to Director Chopra and, and not gotten answers on those questions. And so until he can kind of piece together a narrative and send those answers back, that's going to be a little bit of a holdup on his nomination. Now, in terms of what that will ultimately mean, I mean, I think we've seen already a huge shift at the CFPB in the last few months with the acting director, David Weho, put in place. This week, the Bureau is finalizing a rule that basically says everybody who was at risk of foreclosure starting, you know, now has to go through this very extended foreclosure review process designed to ensure that they get reviewed for a modification in every single possible modification program that ever existed. The net result is essentially no foreclosures through 2021. We already are seeing a CFPB that is really focused on how they can help the consumer in a way that really, again, focuses much more on things that we saw during the Obama administration and under Richard Cordray. A greater focus on supervision, a greater focus on enforcement, and a greater focus on making sure that when they look at consumer complaints that they're actually highlighting to the financial institutions that are subject of those complaints what they need to do to fix and address them. And so we really do expect, you know, again, back to that model, it's, it's almost like a return to the days of the Cordray administration in that sense. I love that you touched earlier on fair sort of being the word de jour, not only in D.C., but sort of everywhere. And on one hand, I could obviously quote what my mother told me when I was a kid about life not being that way. But on the other hand, you know, these, these questions are being asked in real ways, in, in ways that policy is going to come to reflect one stance or another. And even though there aren't a lot of answers now, we certainly see a never in my lifetime have I seen an emphasis on this question. And so we've been really encouraging listeners to be on the right side of fairness. Even though we're not extending credit ourselves, we do business with those that do. 
marketing, access, availability, all of those things, because as long as this is a hot topic, we have to tune to those wins, whether we agree with them, disagree with them, think they're long past due or tad bit ridiculous is really not an option for us right now to have that opinion when it comes to our workplace. And we really have to pitch our sail in the direction of that wind, if only to be on the right side of things as enforcement actions come, as as scrutiny that we're not 100% used to seeing in this question of fairness, which obviously is very subjective. So it can be hard to position towards that. But it sounds to me like you're saying that that's very important. The dual mandate that the CFPB is really getting from the administration and the dual mandate that HUD has from the administration is the same, which is how do you promote affordable housing? How do you help consumers harmed by the pandemic? And how do you address systemic inequities that have lasted a number of generations and continue to put a pressure on minorities' ability to get ahead and achieve the American dream in the United States in some ways? And so those three goals are going to underline every single decision that gets made by any financial regulator in D.C. for the next four years. But even if we get back to a Republican administration, you know, if this is a one-term Biden administration, you're going to see a lot of those same pressures still on from a Republican uh, administration. Affordable housing and systemic inequities are issues that are dragging down our housing market in general in a way that all Americans should be concerned about and all Americans should be trying to think through and help and figure out how can we help it you know, looking at basic demographics. Right now, uh, about a little over 64% of the United States are are homeowners. If you break that down, 75% of white Americans are homeowners, and it's only more like 40% of African Americans, a little more than that around for Latino Americans. And what we have to recognize is for homeownership to grow, for the next generation of our Americans to become homeowners, those numbers, especially for the Latinx and and for the African-American community, are going to have to rise and rise dramatically. Because by 2055, there's going to be no racial majority in the United States. The younger generations are more diverse every year than the cohort before them. And so we need to figure out the right ways to serve those communities and communities of color across the country have a lot of nuances that we have to think about and and figure out the right way to to market into those communities. Because same ways that we market today may not be the right ways to market to those next set of customers or or market in a way to help make those next set of customers understand the value of title insurance in the right way. We have to think about how do we make them feel comfortable and welcome when they come to a closing room and feel like they're getting the same celebratory experience that you want them to have. We want to push remote notarization and digital closing because we know that there's a lot of benefit and value and efficiency in there. And then we have to recognize that there's a lot of communities that don't have strong Wi-Fi connections or strong broadband ability or a lot of families that don't have access to the type of connectivity, the only device they might have in their house that is strong enough to do a a digital closing is one person's iPad or one person's iPhone and they might need that for work. And while that experience for a lot of people is going to be an advantageous positive experience, it could actually be more anxiety inducing for a first-time buyer or someone who is in the scenario which you described. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, is it? It's not. And that's why it's so important to think through all of the different ways in which we can serve the needs of all of our customers and really strive in our efforts to make our industry continually reflect the diversity of the United States of America, because the more that we can meet the needs of those customers across all different avenues, it's only going to pay dividends, not just, you know, helping you find ways to grow your business, but really helping make sure you, again, your customers are taken care of, that they feel safe, that they feel secure when they're buying a home, that they trust the process that they're going through. And that hopefully at the end of the day, when you're giving them their keys, they have that same celebratory experience that you hopefully want them to have. The photo you take of them that they have put on Instagram is actually reflective of the happiness that they feel because they felt taken care of. They felt like they got to understand what they're doing and they understand what you're doing to protect them every day.
and the path to the pride of ownership might be a little bit different, but you're right. At the end of the day, we definitely want everyone feeling that pride of ownership because that's just a benefit for everyone universally, right? Home is people's castle. Home is people's security blanket. Home is where people want to feel safe. And the key to safety is protection. And that's what you all provide every day as title agents. Our title is protection as title agents, and that's what we do every day. And it's, you know, how do we serve the next generation of home buyers and helping them feel protected as they buy a home is going to be the key for us to being ready for not just to continue for the, the last hundred years of business that we've been in, 150 years of, of the title industry, but be prepared for the next 150 years. Because no matter what Elon Musk says, blockchain is not going to be able to provide the same level of emotional support and protection and all of that that you all provide every day to customers. And so I like our chances against the robots. That's very well said. I'm right with you on that. Okay, so we covered the executive branch. We talked about the legislative branch a little bit. One area that continues to be highly functional is the courts. I mean, the Supreme Court is just racking them up, putting the decisions down in some numbers that people didn't expect, a lot more unified than people expected it to be after the appointments in the last administration. So what are you watching with regard to at least the Supreme Court? This narrative that comes out of, you know, again, you know, more partisanship that has entered the Supreme Court nomination process makes people think that more and more of these cases are going to come down 5-4 and they're going to be highly partisan and they're going to overturn everybody's expectations. But the reality is the court has always been and courts are always guided by a concept of stare decisis of precedent and making sure that there is a non-wild swing in people's expectations. And that is certainly a mindset that you see out of the Chief Justice John Roberts, where he really works to figure out exactly how to make the broadest possible ruling coalition out there. And that means narrowing a holding to get more people onto it. That's usually his mindset there. There are a lot of areas that we are focused on when it comes down to what is going on in the courts. And I think the biggest one that we pay a lot of attention to is this concept around, in legal terms, that we call concrete harm and standing. There's a couple of cases that have happened in the last year. One is a, a case called Spokio versus Robbins. Another was one that involving TransUnion that really try to address this question of, should we be giving the courts a role or what type of results should happen when there might be a technical violation of a consumer protection law, but it doesn't really lead to any concrete harm. The most recent case on this was a case that came out this year involving TransUnion. The crux of the case was TransUnion had been offering an OFAC service as part of its credit checks. And in that, they were just matching the names up against the OFAC list without doing any extra digging to decide if this John Smith was actually the John Smith on the OFAC list. And so every John Smith was getting marked as a potential OFAC match, which most of us know means really bad things for your ability to actually get on an airplane or get, get credit and things like that. And so there was a group of people who had those matches actually sent out as part of a credit report you know, involving a actual attempt to a loan application. Those people had a much clearer sense of harm that happened to them. There was also a whole bunch of people that had those OFAC matches and they were in the credit file, but their credit file was never accessed. Nobody requested it. Did they really suffer a harm because of a mistake that TransUnion did? And the court kind of came back and said they really didn't suffer the type of harm that a court should have redress for. The second part of that case involved disclosure. So for those of you familiar with credit check world, anytime your credit is checked, you have the right to get some disclosures about the use of your credit report and your ability to correct your credit file. And so in a manner that is a little bit similar to RESPA, there are very specific disclosures that you're supposed to provide. If you don't quite provide the right disclosure, technically you are violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But the court came back in this case and said just mere technical violations of disclosure laws don't necessarily have that type of harm that provides for a court to award monetary penalties. Now, if that disclosure law meant you didn't get the information you were entitled to get in a manner. So if it was something was missing, as opposed to they weren't in the right space on the right form, that's a different story. But if we think about it, a lot of what we do every day involves disclosures. 
driven by RESPA where we fear that the technical mistake that we might make where something appears in the wrong bucket or the wrong item on page three of your TRID disclosures or page two of your TRID disclosures, oh my God, we're going to be open to a whole bunch of penalties. But what the court is really narrowing down is as long as the correct information is on there somewhere understandable to a normal consumer, that should be fine. Now, if it's just mere technical violations, that might give companies a better ability to defend those lawsuits. And so this is something we really are paying attention to in this space because of the way that class action lawsuits have been used around RESPA to really extort very large settlements out of title companies that really didn't do anything to harm a consumer. They just didn't quite follow the law correctly. And it is refreshing to see an institution continuing to chug along in a predictable and sane and rational way. And we'll hope that some of the other institutions take a page from their book. It is actually reassuring because we're very pragmatic in this industry. And we just tend to say, tell us what the rules are and we will stay on the right side of them. But when we don't know where those rules are and we inadvertently take a step wrong, then to just be whacked to death over that. Talk about the question of fair. That doesn't seem fair either, does it? We hear this a lot from our members, that fear of these laws that have been passed over decades that set out these consumer protections that come with pretty strong statutory penalties don't come with the type of guidance that helped make it easy for you to avoid those penalties. And so it's something that we have focused a lot at ALTA trying to work with our folks in different federal agencies to set that right expectation that before you get penalized, there should be at least some guidance that comes out to you. And, you know, it's something that we focused a lot with the CFPB over the last few years. And one of the things before she was removed as director of the CFPB that Kathy Craninger did is put out some new FAQs around RESPA, which is the first that the Bureau had put out RESPA-related FAQs in its founding. And they didn't break new ground in what they said, but it's just the mere fact of getting those types of things out there and, and setting up the expectation that if you're going to hold companies to a new expectation, that you need to not just tell them through an enforcement action, but hopefully to tell them beforehand, give them examples, give them concrete ways to understand what they're doing, why it might violate the law and what they can do to protect themselves from doing that. Because I don't know about you, I've met thousands of title agents across the country. I haven't met one yet that said that they're out to screw a consumer or they're out to violate the law. They all want to do the right thing. When they don't, it's usually because they don't know better or and there's no place to go and ask a question to know that you are doing it the right way. And so if we can change that dynamic, that's what we're trying to do and hopefully make it possible. Agreed, agreed. Well, one other dynamic that I'd like to change within our listener community is the degree to which anyone is nervous. I hate to use scared. That's a little, probably a little bit dramatic, but doesn't feel as though they have anything productive to contribute to an elected representative of theirs, be it federal or state. I think a lot of people have a lot of anxiety or just trepidation about, okay, after I say, hello, representative so-and-so, I'm your constituent, I'm in the title business, I think they're not sure what to say next. And so you're giving some guidance today about the type of issues that they really do want to hear from their constituents about is important. But secondarily, can you talk about some of the ways that title agents can approach their elected officials to begin to talk about some of these things that is a little less scary. And I'm thinking about TAN, I'm thinking about office visits, I'm thinking about just emails if that's too much. But some of those ways, Steve, that are sort of first nature for you because you're in D.C. and it's your job every day, you know, your average title agent or escrow officer may think, "Mm, I'm not entitled to have that conversation. So talk if you would about that. 
Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, back in May, we had our virtual advocacy summit, which is where we asked members from across the country to normally fly into D.C., talk to members of Congress, and tell our story. We did it virtually over Zoom for the most part. The virtual option also allowed us to offer registration for free because yeah, we didn't have to have to cover the cost of hotels and things like that, thanks to a lot of our sponsors like RamQuest and others to make that possible. Because of it was free, we had more first-time attendees than ever, roughly 100 people that you know had never attended and never done a lobby day with us before. And the biggest piece of advice I gave to folks that entire week as, I, as we were prepping people for these meetings is you really can't say the wrong thing. There's actually no wrong thing you can say because as long as you're telling something about your experience, what's happening in your business, what's happening with your customers, it's always the right thing to say. Every meeting I ever go into in which I'm bringing a constituent in and I'm going in as the lobbyist in there, the member of Congress does not want to talk to the lobbyist. As much as that is the narrative that DC is controlled by lobbyists, to some degree that might be true. The reality is members of Congress want to talk to their constituents, and the more that we can connect them with members of their constituents, the more they are trusting the information that they're getting from lobbyists and the more that they're trusting what's happening in our industry and more likely to support our story. You know, you have to remember there's 15,000 or so trade associations in, in D.C. that are all lobbying Congress at the same time. And so you've got to cut through a lot of noise, and the best way for us to cut through noise is to have an active, engaged membership that wants to tell the story of what's happening in their business directly to their representatives because that is the one type of thing that stands out amongst all of the things that get said by lobbyists. So we've got a lot of avenues to do that. You, you mentioned the Title Action Network, which is our free grassroots platform where we ask you, not very often, four or five times a year, send a letter to a member of Congress email system. We even write it for you. All you have to do is put your name on it and hit send. But again, just highlighting to them, helping them see again what's happening in their district with their companies, with their consumers, with the people that they represent and who are buying homes and understand that. August in D.C. is traditionally the slow time in D.C. because members of Congress go and take a month-long vacation. They call it work. They call it they're going back for a district period, but it's really just a vacation. But it's also a great time for you all as business owners to get in contact with that member's office. Every member of Congress has a district office where they have a staff of people who are whole job is to find ways to connect their boss with the business community and the people of their constituency. Placing a call in, seeing, hey, is there an opportunity for me to come over to the office and talk about what's going on in my business? Or better yet, inviting the member of Congress to come to your office and see a closing in person or talk with your employees. They'd love to do those types of things. This year, with the fear over the Delta variant, you may get a little bit of trepidation to coming inside of an office, but if you've got like a patio area in your office or at least a, a good setup for your drive-up closing still up in the tents and all that stuff and you can do it outside, members of Congress will come every day of the week to do those types of things and they want to hear the story that your closures have to tell about the most difficult closing that they had. They want to hear the story about the old lady that you helped figure out how to refinance their house so that they can live closer to their grandkids or things like that. They want to hear those stories because they want to hear what's happening in their local market. So please take advantage of the tools that we have. Please take advantage of the opportunities that we present to you because I think there's so much bang that you can get by just putting yourself out there that doesn't cost a ton of money to help influence the opinion of our industry with policymakers. It helps us sell concepts, whether it's promoting the remote notarization topic with the Secure Notarization Act, with helping members of Congress understand the risk of wire fraud and how often your customers and your team fights off these attacks by hackers from Russia or wherever they're from whether it's talking about the different consumers that you're protecting and working with and the affordable housing work that you're doing, the community charities that you work with. We know all across the country that there are title companies that do a lot of charitable work. Part of the reason we founded a new foundation last year in the middle of a pandemic was to help amp up the work that you all are doing. And we've been so impressed by the amount of charity giving that you all have done to our Alta Good Deeds Foundation, completely more touched by the stories of the charities that you support that we've been able to then donate back to to help fund those missions locally and help, as we say, Good Deeds helps build communities and we want to build better and better communities across the country. And so 
you know, inviting your member of Congress to help with the local food drive that you're hosting or whatever charitable event that you're doing, always going to pay dividends. Well, I think that is such great advice. And for anyone who is the slightest bit intimidated by all of this, I understand. I was there too before I came and participated in that. I think my fears were, oh, I'm not conversant enough in the things that the representative is going to be interested in, or I don't want to just go in with complaints or things I need to see changed, but boy, do they really want that softer side, that more positive side, that feel-good side. And if there's anything I've learned over the past 15 years of doing this is, one, absolutely to what you said, they do want to see you. Two, they do want the positive affirmation. Three, they want to come to your office and see what you do, and they'll probably bring media with them. Four, they are not going to be more conversant than you are about your business. You're not going to get stumped. There's not going to be any aha moment. And lastly, too, even when you see them out in the community, either an event that they are hosting or, you know, something else, they see you, they remember you, they recognize you. And that's just all a positive. So for anybody that's feeling a little bit on the sidelines or one or two degrees removed, just jump in, give it a try once. Alta will absolutely hold your hand and prepare you for it and set you up for success. But once you get that first one under your belt, you're going to wonder, why haven't I been doing this the whole time? Because it really does make a difference. We've got such a great group of lobbyists here that can really help you think through all the different avenues. And I encourage everyone, our two head lobbyists, Chris Morton and, and Emily Tryon, are just wizards when it comes to understanding the relationships and who is, feels what way about you know different aspects of our industry. But just getting in touch with somebody like our political engagement head, Leah Schimpf-Voss, she can help you think very creatively about the different opportunities, help you get in touch with your member of Congress if you're so inclined. Again, ask them to come for a visit to your office. I always think of it this way, which is members of Congress don't want to hear talking points. They get that enough from lobbyists. What they want to hear is stories. As good as our lobbyists are, they will never know and be better at storytelling about what you do every day and how it matters to your customers than you are. All you have to think about is I'm telling stories just like you would be telling a story if you were out at the golf course on a Saturday night or if you were out at a dinner or drinks or anything like that. It's just telling that type of story that you would tell in any type of social setting with other title geeks and our members of Congress, they eat that stuff up. Thank you, Steve, for the great insight. We have more information covering much of what Steve talked about and his contact information featured in the quick links in the show notes for this episode. Whether or not you decide to be brave enough to get into the dialogue with elected officials, at least stay in tune with how these things that impact our business is evolving. And if you don't belong to the Title Action Network, please join right now, today, especially if you think you don't have time to become involved. See, they'll email you when action is needed, and you can state your opinion effectively in just a few clicks, which will go directly to your elected representative. Really, you have no good excuse for not at least being involved at that level. It's free to join. It's easy to do. Until we are back together next time, stay hydrated. I mean, the inventory has to run out at some time, right? And no, drinking vodka doesn't count towards hydration. Darn it. Find a few hours to do something that refreshes you, like a hike in a pretty place, a jammy and Netflix day, some retail therapy, a meal with good friends. I can guarantee you, you're depleted and need some of that. And of course, take a moment to really remember that what you do really matters.